Well, this morning uh, is our kind of once a month morning. We don't have children's ministry, so the kids are going to be in here with us, and that's on purpose. Kids, that's because you're part of the church. That's because we want you to, to be involved. We want you to know that, that God's word is for you and not just for your parents. Now, you get God's word in children's ministry, and that's very intentional, um, but we want to continue to communicate to you guys. You, you belong here, um, and I, I failed you. I did not bring you candy this morning. Usually, if you draw me a picture, I have candy for you after the service, and I don't. But you can still draw me a picture, and I will love it and cherish it and bring candy next week. Um, Ezra, you got to hold me to that. Don't let me forget. All right? Okay. Uh, the other thing I failed to do, because I'm not used to doing announcements, uh, is mention this little book. You have one of these in the end of your row. Go ahead. If you're, uh, if you're new with this, um, throw your information in there. Um, if you've been here a hundred times, just throw your name at the top. We have your contact info. But most importantly, um, I just want to highlight this section at the bottom. How can we pray for you? We want to be praying for you, um, and, uh, and we take that very seriously. Those are held confidential. Um, so fill that out. You rip it off and just tuck it into the side pocket here, um, and, and let us know how we can be supporting uh, you in, in prayer. Um, with that, let's, uh, let's turn to God's Word this morning. Let me invite you to take out your Bible. If you don't have a Bible on you, I want you to slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get you one. We want everybody to have God's word with them this morning. That's just key to how we, how we operate. Um, so I'll give, a, I'll give you a minute, um, get, those, get those handed out. And uh, let me just say, as those are getting handed out, if you don't have a Bible at home or you don't have one that you can read easily, this one's yours. It's our gift to you. Take it. We want you to have it. We love having to restore our stock of Bibles um, that's great. Um, so this morning in particular, I want you to have a Bible. Now, I want you to take that Bible, and we're going to do things just a little bit differently today. I want you to close your Bible. Hold, hold it up in the air so I can see every, every Bible nicely closed. Okay, take your, take your Bible or your cell phone. That's legit. Nick, you're like on the cutting edge. I didn't know. Um, take that Bible and put it down on the floor in front of you and leave it closed where you can't see it. Oh, this is really, <laughs> I have to get some screwy looks. All right, that's good. I'm glad that you're uncomfortable with this. Now, the next thing I'm going to ask you to do is a little bit trickier. I want you to take every memory verse and every Bible truth that you've ever learned and just kind of push it out of your head for a minute, just temporarily. Just forget that. Now, with every Bible closed and every memory verse temporarily forgotten, Tell me, who is the Lord? Who am I as a human? Why are we here? What is sin? Why does my conscience tell me that I'm, that I'm guilty? And how can I change that? How can I know the creator? I can look outside and see a creation. I know there is a creator. How, how do I know him? How do I get right with him? Or live a life that honors him? What is the church? Where is this world going? Is there an eternity? And, and is it going to be heaven or is it going to be hell? Anybody? Can anyone help me answer any of those questions? We need to understand this book and the value of it. Without God's word, we have nothing. We are hopeless to know God. 
He is transcendent. He is not part of this creation. He is outside and other from this creation. If he does not reach down and say, this is who I am, we don't know who he is. So pick those Bibles up again. Think about the wonder, the value of that book that you hold in your hands right now. Now, Obviously, when I talk about the Bible, I'm talking about the truth contained therein. Um, This Bible will eventually reach its end. The binding's starting to come apart, and I'll need a new one. Um, But that's not the Bible. No wonder David says in Psalm 19, more to be desired are God's words than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. What would be better? Without the Bible, we we have nothing. What on earth could be more important, more precious than these words? The starving man ought to desire God's word above food. The diseased man ought to long for God's word above any medication. The loving father is right to treasure God's word above his precious children. Every one of us, if we could see rightly, would and should care more about this book in our hands than the very breath in our lungs. It's more significant. Do you believe that? Without the truths between these covers, we are helpless. We are hopeless. Jesus himself said, on the other hand, blessed are those, happy are those, full and rich are those who hear God's word and keep it. It's the difference between having God's word and not having God's word. Without God's word, we have nothing but but a fearful expectation of judgment. So as we talk about what's important to us as a church over the last little while and into the next couple of months, how do we operate as a church? Looking at these distinctives on the gray pillars, these uh, redemption culture, fervent prayer, bold preaching, passionate worship, purposeful disciple-making courageous evangelism, strategic church planting. Um, We we can't get far until we get to God's word, bold preaching. That's what we want to talk about this morning, the the proclamation of God's word. And and we believe in the proclamation of God's word in a very specific and intentional way. We believe in bold preaching that is expository and applicational. And, And I just want to unpack what that means. Now, having said that, I can't go forward without doing it in a way that is, well, bold, expository, and applicational. Uh, So it's a little bit meta this morning. We're going to do some expositional preaching about expositional preaching. Uh, Open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy is just about a pastor's manual. Um, Timothy had planted the church in Ephesus, and he was uh, leading and growing that church And he left Timothy there. He went on to continue in his journey and left Timothy there to lead it, to be the pastor there. And he's sending this letter back to Timothy saying, hang in there. Here's what you need to do. Here's what's important for you as a young pastor, Timothy. In chapter 4, Paul's tone reaches a new level. And he lays down this solemn Charge. I want to read it for us. We're going to focus our attention on verse 2, but I want to read verses 1 through 4 just so we kind of have the fuller context here. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Paul says, I charge you 
in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The time is coming when people will no longer endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. and Turn away from listening to the truth. Wander off into myths. So I'm just focusing on verse 2. And as we come to hear God's word preached, I want to I pull three basic points out of there. Be prepared for boldness, expect expository, and embrace applicational. First, be prepared for boldness. Put yourself in Timothy's place. Young pastor, just starting off, he's probably in his early 30s, maybe a little bit nervous about leading this church. And he gets this letter from the great Apostle Paul, his, his mentor, but more than that, the Apostle Paul. And imagine as he's reading, he comes along to verse 1. Put yourself in Timothy's shoes. You're reading along and you hear the great Paul writing to you, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. That's a wind-up. That's a serious build-up. Where is this going? He's calling God and Jesus as witnesses of this command. Reminding Timothy that Jesus, who is the witness of this command, is the one who is going to judge your faithfulness in keeping it. And he's the judge of the living and the dead. There is no escape from his judgment. He's the king with a kingdom, and it is coming, and it's coming soon. I don't think there is a more serious, over-the-top, high-calling charge in anywhere else of Scripture. Without even knowing what this command is, Timothy's knees must have just got a little bit weak. Where's this going? And the command is straightforward. Preach the word. Preach the word. Do it in season and out of season. And by that he means do it when it's favorable and when it's not. Do it when people want to hear the word preached, when they're eager to hear the word preached, and when your life is on the line for it. When it's popular and acceptable and respected and when it's said to be arrogant and presumptuous and unacceptable. Timothy's approach is not not to be changed based on public opinion. His charge is so much higher than that. It's not about what's popular or what works or about what church growth guru says next. This is obedience to God. A charge made before God Almighty and Jesus Christ who will judge all men. And and the charge is very specific. Preach the word. Preach there. Caruxo. It means to proclaim, to announce, to declare it. There are many in our day who would say that the days of of propositional preaching are over. We don't do that anymore. It's not effective. People don't listen to that. Don't make truth claims. Don't say this is right. This is true. And the new trend is a much more conversational style. Pull out the stool. I'm not going to tell you anything. We're just going to kind of have a conversation together. We're just going to kind of walk along this journey together. Or narrative preaching rather than 
thus saith the Lord. It's, let me just tell you a story. And I'm not going to call on truths from God. I'm going I'm to evoke your emotions and just bring you along that way. Paul is commanding Timothy very specifically, proclaim, preach the word. Stand boldly in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets and say, this is what the Lord has said. Timothy's job and the job of the pastor is to stand firm in spite of opposition and declare clearly, this is the word of God. This is what it says. So when you come to church, be prepared for boldness. Be ready for that. God's word is clear and it is incumbent upon me to proclaim it with equal clarity, not shying away. As a pastor, I I tremble before that charge. Made in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Knowing that his kingdom is coming, that day of reckoning is upon us. As I prepare in my study to preach as I stand before you Sunday after Sunday, that command makes me tremble. That's what's foremost in my mind. And so I'm not asking for your permission. I'm not looking for your applause or your approval. You can boo me all you want. This continues. My goal is to please the one who enlisted me, to stand before him on that great day of judgment in confidence. And at that point, nothing else matters. I want to stand before him with the same confidence that that Paul declared. Acts 20 is actually speaking to the elders from Ephesus. And he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So be prepared for boldness. Secondly, looking at this same phrase here, we ought to expect expository preaching. It's going to take a little more to unpack. Timothy is commanded to preach, to boldly proclaim what exactly? His own thoughts, his own ideas and musings about who God is or no. It's about personal stories and and moving poems. No. No, Timothy can be bold and must be bold because of the content of his message. He's to preach the word, the word of God. The word kuruxo there that we talked about already, proclaim, uh, not only leans toward this idea of, of boldness, but partly it's boldness carried by the idea that it, it's, it's a herald. He's a, he's a messenger. He's making a proclamation that's not his own. It's not his to be timid about. Like the messenger of A king, he doesn't apologize for the king's message. It's not his message. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul declares, For we proclaim, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We don't just preach anything. We preach the word. And it's significant. That's for a reason. Most Sundays at the outset of my sermon, somewhat contrary to what you saw today, uh, I'm going to ask people to take out their Bibles and have them open on their laps. Because I'm not interested in what I have to say, and I hope you aren't either. And I will admit freely, I have no great wisdom. I have nothing to offer you. If you're coming to me as some wise sage, you're out of luck. But God's Word has everything we need. 
It's God's word that speaks to us. And so I want you to be able to look down and see he's not giving me his own ideas. This is God's word. I can see it here on the page. My goal is to say nothing other than what God has already said. That's, that's what the word expository means. It means simply to expose God's word. To take what's there, what is written, and make it clear, make it understood. And that approach to preaching is founded on some basic principles of, of what Scripture is. What is this book that we hold in our hands? Paul has just finished laying the foundation for Timothy. This command comes directly out of the doctrine of Scripture. What is God's Word? And so I want us to just back up a little bit and look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You ought to know these passages. You probably, if you grew up in a Christian home, you probably memorized these as a kid. All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's the foundation for Timothy's charge. And just to unpack this a little bit. What is Paul telling us about God's word? What is he putting before Timothy? Um, first of all, he says, all scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is inerrant. It's breathed out by God. Second Peter 1 puts it this way, knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So yes, man's pen, God's word. This came through God's inspiration. And, and, and so even we look at how Jesus refers to the Old Testament, and, and you can see this time and time again, but just as one example, Matthew twenty-two thirty-one. As for the resurrection of the dead, Jesus says, have you not read what was said to you by God? Jesus is careless with his words. You think he's just kind of flubbing the details here? No. According to Jesus, as they read the Old Testament words on the page, it is God speaking. That's significant. I love John Piper's quote on this. Do you want to hear God speak? Read the Bible out loud. You want to hear God speak? Read the Bible out loud. And because God is perfect, His words are perfect. If His words were not perfect, He would no longer be perfect. Psalm 12, 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. There's no error. There's no mixture in God's word. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So the Bible, breathed out by God, is completely true. It is inerrant. It is without error. You can trust the words written in this book without reservation. Not only is it inerrant, secondly, it's efficient. It does what it sets out to do. It is capable and able. Paul says in, in uh, 2 Timothy 3 here, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 
God's word is efficient to accomplish all of those things. It's the right tool for that job. Isaiah 55, 11. Again, you should know this verse well. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. Hebrews 4, 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 1 Peter 1, 23 Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, listen, through the living and abiding word of God. God's word is powerful. It's the power of God for our salvation. It accomplishes the purposes that God sets it out to do. That's significant. We're moving towards some very practical reasons why we preach the Bible the way we preach it. Why you ought to expect and even demand that kind of preaching. Why would we do anything else? Why would we rely on anything else? God has promised, I will use my word. My word is powerful. It will not come back to me void. It will accomplish all of my purposes. Why would we bother with with any of this other nonsense that floats around? Who buys the book, Finding God in Batman? I don't get it. But the book has been written and it's selling. Why do we rely on personal experience? This is, this is what I have learned over the years. That's great, but is it what God has taught? It's helpful, maybe. Why do we continue to go back to secular self-help or philosophy or psychology? Is God's word efficient or not? If we have in one hand this spiritual atomic bomb, and in the other we have pebbles with which to throw at tanks. Why? Why would we not rely on God's word? Finally, not only is God's word inerrant and efficient, but it's also sufficient. Again, coming out of 2 Timothy 3.17, Scripture is not only what we need, it's all we need. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture breathed out by God is is trustworthy and true. It's filled with the power of God to accomplish God's purposes. And unsurprisingly, it's enough. It'll do the job. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to help it out. We don't need to tweak it along the way. Colossians 2.8 warns, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Jude 1.3 says we need to contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. That's what this is. The faith once for all handed down to the saints. We're not, we're not making additions. We're not tweaking it. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The last words of this book, placed there by God very intentionally, Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's a stern warning. And I think think John's words are specific and intentional there. You can't add to the prophecy 
which is contained in this book. There, there is no word from God more than what is in this book. And you can't take away from the book that is this prophecy. It's enough. It's complete. It's finished. We don't need to hear from God more. We shouldn't expect to hear new revelation. It's sufficient. So then it seems to me, if I am called to boldly proclaim not my own words, but the word of God, and God's words are inerrant and efficient and sufficient, then I would suggest that you ought to expect from me and from anyone who stands in the pulpit a particular kind of preaching. We've called it expository preaching. It's not a new thing. And when I say you ought to expect it, I think it's, this is more than just a passive idea of don't be surprised when you hear it, but this is what you ought to demand. This is what you ought to demand of me as I come week in and week out. I would suggest that if you were to go somewhere else, move or go to another church, this is the number one thing that I would look for. Aside from a, a clear doctrinal statement on the, the core foundations of the faith, the next thing I would look at would to, to determine, is this, a, is this a good church? Is this a church where I will grow in my faith? Where a, good, a church that will be faithful to what God's word says is expository preaching. How does the pastor handle God's word in the pulpit week after week? If you get that right, everything else will eventually fall into place, right? If we're working through God's word faithfully and submitting to it, then that's going to form everything else we do. If we miss that, the wheels are coming off this wagon. Maybe we can hold it together and keep online for a little while, but, but this is the glue. So what do I mean by expository preaching? Maybe that's a new word for some of you. Maybe that's a word you've heard and you just haven't quite been able to wrap your head around it. Um, the simplest explanation is this. It's opening God's word and exposing what's there. Expository preaching begins with the Bible. Bringing it to light, making it clearer. By way of contrast, I think probably the most common format of preaching in, in North America in our day and age is topical preaching. Topical preaching says, I'm going to start with a topic. I'm going to preach about marriage, or I'm going to preach about money, or angels, or, or faith, or laziness, or whatever. And the pastor will then either decide on the points he wants to make, and then, and then grab a whole bunch of scriptures, often out of context, because it's really hard to build context for every passage, and I'm just going to push those together to prove the points that I want to make. Maybe a little better is, is, to then, is that he looks through Scripture and kind of categorizes them and, and lets those Scriptures and what they say kind of form the message. But expository preaching, on the other hand, starts with the Bible. Starts with Scripture and lets the Bible lead. The preacher opens up to a text of Scripture and begins to study the passage. What does this passage say? The grammar, the context, the flow of it. And whatever that passage says is what he says from the pulpit. He might use all kinds of other Scriptures to help explain and support his points. But he's preaching out of one passage of Scripture, and the point of the passage is the point of the message. The outline of the passage becomes the outline of the message. The most pure and consistent form then of expository preaching is to not just take a verse, but to take a book. 
work our way through a book of the Bible. And so that not only individual sermons, but, but the entire flow of the sermons over months or a year are ordered and structured by God's revealed word. The topics that we hit are the topics that God has laid out. The, the themes that come to the top are not the ones that are most important to me. They're the ones that, that God continues to circle back to. There are a lot of benefits. Expository preaching seeks to minimize the preacher and maximize God's word. It's trying to push me to the background, which I am more than okay with, and let God's word be forefront. That's the goal. It keeps me from just hitting those topics that I think I need to hit. My hobby horses that I, that I get a kick out of. Uh, it forces me to preach through passages that I never would have preached on. I don't know how many times we're going through the book of Acts over two years, and I open up and go, that's what I'm preaching on next? What do I do with this, God? I don't know what this means. So Herod was eaten by worms? What do I preach about this? You start to dig in, and you're reminded now, God's word is rich. God's word is good. There's, there's a message here for us. Some of those sermons that I start off wondering, what on earth do I do with this, become life-changing in the church. And it frees me up to, to preach boldly. Because at the end of my sermon, I hope, if I've done my job, someone comes up to me and says, how dare you say that? I can just step back and say, take it up with God. He said it first. I, I'm just a parrot here. I didn't say that. I'm, this is secondhand. I don't need to fight those fights. And I think I'm bound to it by 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word. Also passages, as we read earlier, Acts 20. Paul says that he's innocent of the blood of all. He stands before God guiltless because he did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. He was willing to preach all of it. I hope I live that long, but I, at this pace, I doubt it. Um, now, to be fair, I, I don't think it's sin to preach a different way, to preach a different kind of sermon. I don't think it's wrong necessarily. Some of them certainly are if you're saying something that is not what God's Word says. Um, but there are faithful men who preach different. I just don't think it's wise. And I believe that expository preaching through books of the Bible is the most faithful way, the most fruitful way to serve Christ in His church in the pulpit. But you might notice over the last couple of weeks and this week, um, we're kind of working with a bit of a hybrid here. Uh, I've been preaching on topics. I am right now. and I've preached on abide in Christ, grow in the church, reach the community. Um, we, we preached on fervent prayer last week, and we're going to work our way through these, these six pillars. I don't think that's wrong, or I wouldn't have done it. You'll also notice that each one of these sermons in and of itself is expository. Begins with a scripture. And I'll tell you, when I started the sermon out of Chronicles last week on fervent prayer, I did not end up saying what I thought I would say when I started. I, I start, of course, you, you think, oh, here's the passage we're going to use, and you begin to study, and oh, I don't have the right to hijack this and take it where I want to go. I, I need to follow this where God is. I need to let this say what it's saying. And so still bringing that expository preaching to the fore. And I hope today, as you look down at 2 Timothy 4, 2, you can see on the face of it, I'm just trying to say what Paul has said to Timothy, what the Lord said through Paul. Now, 
You might think that's kind of suspicious because, boy, this bold expository applicational thing, that fits really well, doesn't it? Well, yeah, but it goes the other way. This, this was formed by Scripture first. And this week was a busy week. I was gone to a conference till, uh, till Wednesday night. Um, didn't have as much time to study as I would have liked, but I was a full, I think, six or seven hours into studying this passage before that, that outline was written down. Sure, I saw the elements of it. There's a reason that I started in this passage. Um, but I want to I know, am I getting this text right? Am I letting this text shape my sermon? Now, if you're paying really close attention, you may have noticed recently the only, as far as I can remember, topical sermon that has ever been preached in this pulpit since the founding of this church. Anybody have a guess? Does anybody know when it was? We changed our name to Redemption Church. Now, we need to ask the question, what is redemption? If we're going to go to a church called Redemption Church, we better, we better know what redemption is. Well, redemption's a big topic, and, and I think it's helpful to kind of look at this theme of redemption through Scripture. It's difficult. It's hard to be faithful in preaching that way. You need to be really careful not to misuse text, not to start with your own ideas. But I don't think it's wrong, Man, or I wouldn't have done it. But I think the general diet, the ebb and flow of preaching in the pulpit ought to be expositional preaching through a book of the Bible. That's why we're spending a couple of months here. It's just kind of setting this foundation, figuring out who we are, making sure we're all kind of on the same page. And then we're going to spend a year just going through Exodus. Who is the Lord? Such a great book. I'm just having a blast studying this. We're going to have a great, great time working through Exodus and that's what you ought to expect as a church. Be, be prepared for boldness and expect expositional preaching. And then finally, embrace applicational. Maybe you're wondering, uh, if we're to take the first half of this verse seriously, should we be just reading God's word? Wouldn't that be best? Just literally proclaim the words of God straight up. And, and I appreciate the value of the public reading of Scripture. And we, we try to work that into our service as much as we can. But I think it's significant that following 3, 16 and 17, Paul lays out Scripture as inerrant and efficient and sufficient. And then he goes on to command Timothy to preach it. And he defines, he unpacks what that preaching looks like. And the implications here in the end of this verse is that it's not just the proclamation of God's word, but the application of it as well. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So as you expect, expository preaching, you ought to embrace applicational preaching. And that means that as Scripture is preached, it's going to, as God promised, be at work in us. And and that can be an uncomfortable experience. That probably means that some sermons are going to pinch. And if they don't, there's a problem. Go back to Hebrews 4.12. Think about this as I read. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What about that seems pleasant to you? It's sharp. God's word cuts us. 
like a surgeon's scalpel. It's good, but it's not always pleasant. The first word there, reprove, that's a tough one. The Greek word elenxon, uh, it's the same one Jesus uses over in, in John 3.20. He says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light because he does not, and he does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed, reproved, shown to be what they are, uncovered. We don't like having our sin uncovered. We don't like that exposed feeling. But we need it desperately. And so it is God's grace through the preaching of his word to expose our sin, to reprove us, to uncover it. Sin grows in the darkness. That's part of this sanctifying work of God's word. It reproves and then it also rebukes. Rebuke is, speaks of going beyond just exposing the sin, showing it to be there, but to challenge it, to get in its face, to say, this is, this is not okay. There's, there's discipline for this. This is, this is not right. Don't carry on down this path. Again, to go back to Jesus, Luke 17, 3, he says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins against him, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So it's directly confronting sin. A call for repentance, for change. It's not enough for me to just stand up here and kind of dispassionately make note of this is what God's word says. And and there are people who would argue that's the preacher's job. Let the Holy Spirit apply the preaching. I, I don't think that's right. Now the Holy Spirit does far more than I ever can. But I think to infer from this challenge that Paul is giving here, it is my job to get this down into our lives. To ask, what does this mean for us in in 2018 in Olds, Alberta? How does this apply here and now? And to call us to repent, to call us to, to grow, to be transformed by the word of God. One of the highest compliments that, that I've ever received in my preaching is to be told that, that this church doesn't have any conviction-free seats. Maybe you found one, um, but that ought to be the case. SeaWorld has the, the splash zone, um, and you can sit up out of the splash zone if you want. I, I hope our church doesn't have a non-splash zone. But if you come to Redemption Church, our goal is that that the preaching ought to sting a little bit. And I believe it ought to. Now, there are those who don't appreciate that. I know for a fact there are people who go to other churches today because they don't like the sting of preaching. They have told me. I have personally been painfully fired from a preaching position and told, you talk too much about sin. I don't revel in that. I I grieve those outcomes. I've spent countless sleepless nights fretting and praying with, with this, this trying to understand, hoping that, that their offense was by the offense of God's word and not the offense of my sinfulness pouring out. And I am not at all convinced that that's the case. I'll have to answer to God for that. But at the same time, I under, understand myself to be under this solemn charge before the Lord Almighty to preach the word, to reprove and rebuke. I'm not going to do it perfectly. I'll have to stand up here and apologize. I've done it before and I'll do it again. But I will not be moved from this command and I will strive to obey 
this charge to its fullest. Paul goes on to warn in verses 3 and 4, the time is coming. And I think he's implying to Timothy, it's probably already here. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Itching ears. NASB puts it this way, wanting to have their ears tickled. I don't want the pinch of preaching. I just want the good stuff. Just give me the gravy. Leave the meat off to the side. I just want that which feels nice on my ears. Brothers and sisters, don't let that be you. Don't fall into that trap. There will always be happy, feel-good, storytelling, self-help spewing preachers. You can have your ears tickled all day long. Listen to a clip from a I know I shouldn't do this, but I torture myself. Listening to a, a few clips from a Joel Osteen sermon the other day. He says to his congregation, don't get up in the morning and complain. Look in the mirror and declare, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am attractive. I am getting younger. Talk like that and God will renew your youth. That was the, that was the thrust of his message. It was, it was positive self-talk, the power of I am, and by that he did not mean God. He meant your words about yourself. It's not Christianity. It's not in here. That is pop psychology. Worse, that's, that's new age power of words. It's, it's nonsense. You wonder why he has the largest church in America. Because he's mastered the art of ear tickling. Paul tells us where that leads in verse 4. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Myths. What a waste of your life. Who wants to to spend their life following myths? Church, don't let that be you. This is what Psalm 23 means when it says, His rod and His staff that comfort me. I'm comforted by the sting of God's correction on either side. His loving discipline. Hebrews 12, 11. From the moment, all discipline is painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. What a beautiful promise. Paul talks about this in, in 2 Corinthians 7, 8. He, he himself is wrestling with this. It's for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it. He, he second-guessed himself there for a little while. Was I too strong? Did I rebuke too harshly? For I see that my letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, and so you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. We ought to feel, we ought to look for and desire that godly grief that leads us to repentance. It gives us salvation without regret, gives us confidence before the Lord. I pray that you will learn to embrace that applicational preaching. That you will look for and love the reprove and rebuke of God in your life through his word. The word of God might have its full effect in our hearts. But not all application is painful. Paul does continue on in telling Timothy also to exhort. 
To exhort means to, to strengthen, to build up, to encourage, to, to press on. There's a, a challenge to it. It's, 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 a, it's a robust command, but it's, but it's strengthening. It's the hope and strength and encouragement that follows that pain and conviction. It's the passionate call, the way forward toward holiness, toward Christ-likeness. Let's go, church. This is the, this is the goal. We're moving there together. Preaching ought to move our hearts not only away from sin, but to Christ. He is our strength. Expositional preaching ought to leave us hopeful, trusting in the great promises of His Word. They, they do not return void. That His disciple, or his, his discipline does produce this peaceful fruit of righteousness. He will bring that about in our lives, that, that people can be radically changed, and that includes you. That's what God's word does. And ultimately ought to point us back to the hope we have in Christ. That's the, the pinnacle of our exhortation, our strengthening. All scripture from, from Genesis to Revelation is part of this one great storyline of, of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and eventual consummation. And so every sermon falling on this storyline of scripture ought to come back together pointing us to Christ. And even as Paul challenges Timothy here to, to preach the word, he closes this section reminding him, verse 8, Henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Here's where patience comes in. Who's that crown for? Is it for those who have preached perfectly? No, you're going to have to have patience with me. Is it for those who have perfectly obeyed preaching? No, I'm going to have to have patience with you and myself. The day is coming. The righteous judge will return. But who does he judge harshly and who does he reward? He rewards not the perfect, but those who have loved his appearing. Those who trust in him. Those whose hope is not in their own righteousness. They're not loving their own doing and, and trying to impress God. They're looking forward to His return. They're trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus on their behalf. And so even as they wrestle with sin so imperfectly, working through this life, the cry of their hearts is, Come, Lord Jesus, come. I don't fear that judgment day. I long for it. It's hard. Preaching the word is hard. Rebuking and reproving and exhorting is demanding and spiritually taxing work. And being reproved and rebuked and exhorted is hard. This world of sin is a weary place for believers. And for me as a preacher and for you as one who listens to preaching, it takes patience. It takes long-suffering. Diligence over the years as the Lord slowly works in us. But all the while we are strengthened, we're encouraged. Knowing that our hope is not in ourselves, our hope is on Christ. Our hope is looking forward to that glorious day. And it's coming soon. It's coming soon. 